Today's show is sponsored by Bob's Red Mill, employee-owned and operated, and founded on the principle of good food for all. Learn more at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. Listening to Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network. I'm your host, Kathy Airway. It is a gorgeous day. It's very hot, though, actually. It's a, we just got a heat wave that uh, sort of just ripped through Brooklyn all of a sudden after like some 50 degree days, and it's now in the 90s, as usual. That's what happens here in New York. <laughs> um, but I'm sitting in a, in a cooling, it's just beginning to cool off here in uh, our station here at Heritage Radio Network with a very cool guest, too. <laughs> And perhaps the coolest book of the summer. And I don't mean just cookbook. I mean, like, book. Um, (laughs) Yeah, it's Julia Sherman. And the book is called Salad for President, a cookbook inspired by by artists. Hi, Julia. Hi, Kathy. Thanks for coming. Thanks for having me. Okay, so first things first... um, Congratulations. Thank you. This started as a blog, so this is totally a blog to book, your first book. Yes. Your blog is also called Salad for President. Mm-hmm. Um, why Salad for President? I mean, first of all, I wish our president was a salad right now. I know. Now. It's taken on a new Weird. level of significance know, in the past God. year. But when you started, it wasn't like our president was fine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, why did you come up with that name? Um, well, I think there's two, there were two parts to it. Um, the name was, was taken originally from another blog that my husband and I had set up for our unborn nephew, which was called Dylan for president. So we wanted our, um, we wanted my brother-in-law to maintain the blog from before he was born and then pass it on to him. So he'd have a record of his whole life. I know I'm sure other people do this, but it does, it does seem like a crazy, a crazy thing that, uh, I don't know why everybody doesn't do it. Did, uh, did the parents want him to be a president one day or? No, it was just like a funny thing (laughs) because he was like an, he was just a fetus to, you know, start his campaign for his presidency then just was comical to us. But ultimately we, um, they never maintained the blog and nobody ever posted to it. And so we recouped the name. Um, but the idea was that I was a visual artist and um, working as a professional photographer, but my salad making was getting kind of like out of hand. And even though my salad salad making practice was something that I considered to be just a hobby or a thing I did to, to eat, eat. Yeah. like it wasn't <laughs> something I ever thought would be my work. Mm-hmm. Um, the idea was like, what if you took that small thing you're doing every day so seriously, like as if, you know, and, and assign this sort of political campaign language to mm-hmm. it. But what if you took the thing that you're doing on the side and you campaigned for it? Like, could it become your work? Could it become the center of your of your world? And I, I, I think it has, obviously. So, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I think that's so cool. I mean, you're you're a visual artist. You've been you've been um, you grew up in a family of visual artists as mm-hmm. well. Mm-hmm. So you have an MFA from, you know, you know, in fine arts. Mm-hmm. 
and you've been a photographer. So you approach food from a very unique perspective, and it seems like this is your this is a project that you've been working on for a very um, I don't know how long ago did you start the blog and the twenty twelve twenty twelve yeah mm-hmm. so. This is like sort of the culmination of Salad for President as a visual art form? or um, I mean, I think that I always felt that this would become a book. So um, the blog felt like a way to mm-hmm. workshop those ideas. Yeah. And, um, and making a book is a really different process than maintaining a yeah, website. Um, there's a whole next level of editing that needs to happen. And, you know, it's quite sobering to realize that where, whereas for one of the stories um, on my website where I make a salad with an artist and I visit with them and I photograph their home and their work and their food and it's kind of, um, I don't have to show much restraint. I can do use, I can use all the content uh, in a book. You really only have, you know, unless this was going to be the largest salad book ever made, um, you only have a few pages per artist. So I think um, the the process of making the book was definitely it was definitely a really a very different exercise, and mm. um, it is the culmination. I'm still maintaining the blog, and I'm still working on it. And I think you know the beauty of this project for me is that it is really open ended. It's a blog, but it's also events, sure. and it's projects at museums, yeah. and it's writing for other magazines, and it's all of that. And maybe it'll evolve. But um, yeah. I, I think it's cool because you know the because of this perspective that you bring to the recipes. I mean, people can look at this and um, do whatever and get inspired to kind of like make a salad that doesn't have to be, you know, following these like step-by-step rules. It's like sort of gathering, Mm -hmm. um, just like an artist would gather like mixed medium Mm -hmm. things and put together what they think is beautiful. Mm -hmm. So it's a different approach to cooking also, which is, which is really neat. And I think it's a very good perspective that people should have when it comes to salads, especially in the summer when you have CSI stuff and what have you. Yeah. So, all right. So, okay. If anyone hasn't looked at this book or checked out the blog Salad for Present, you basically feature different artists, creators of some sort, and highlight them in a sort of interview format Mm -hmm. and um, make a dish with them. Mm -hmm. And you, for this book, okay, so for your blog, you started out with people like me mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, other <laughs> other folks who aren't maybe as um, established as perhaps William Wegman uh-huh. or uh, Alice Waters yeah. and so forth, Laurie Anderson, who is featured in this book. So you, do you think that you kind of worked your way up the, um, the art world? No, I mean, I still don't think, like, right now on the blog, the people who are up there, it's very, I started out kind of just, like, experimenting and wanting to, um, wanting to figure out what, figure out what worked. So I think um, over time, at first I was kind of just, like, casting a wide net and felt like if I was interested in what you were doing, then I wanted to, and I wanted to write about you or feature you or, um, or there's something I could learn by cooking alongside you that it was really open-ended and I was really just trying to figure out what this project was and then over time I realized okay there's a lot of people who are writing about chefs and restaurants and that's not really I don't even eat in restaurants that much I'm Mm -hmm. not that's not what I'm I want to know what yeah people eat right at home and I want and I also want to like talk to people about their the way that they conceive of their creative practice as a very varied thing. And I think something I found in a lot of the experiences I had at the beginning, uh, making salad with chefs was that like, we were just right in the center of their world. And it was, it wasn't, it, ne- it was rarely unexpected. Like it was, we were making food with someone who makes food all day, every day. And the truth hmm. is, is if you run a restaurant, you probably don't have time to have 
other interests or <laughs> hobbies. Like it's a full on, you know, 24 yeah. hour a day thing. So I think, um, I found that what my, my unique perspective was or angle or, uh, connection or on entrance into the food world could be was through visual artists or musicians or designers, people who, um, were from, from my world and had been part of my world for a long time, but who also had an interest in food and using the food as a way to have a conversation with them about the varied creative practices that they have that other people aren't asking asking them about. So I, I definitely, I mean, it's very unusual that I actually feature a food professional now, but mm -hmm. I mean, but it's very intuitive. Like it's definitely not about, um, social clout. Like the people who are on yeah. there now are like, I went to Ensenada and I, uh, made carnitas with this guy on the side of the road. And by the daytime I worked with him and his organic garden at this uh, Mexico's first farm-to-table restaurant, but it was really just about, like, these incredible creative people that mm -hmm. I happened upon. And it wasn't, definitely wasn't, like, seeking out the names. I mean, I will say that for a book, you do feel like if you're going to feature people, you should sh aim to get the person that you couldn't necessarily lure onto your blog. There, mm -hmm. you know, yeah. there still is um, something more valuable in saying that you are going to publish a book with that content <laughs> yeah. as opposed to put it on the internet. So that did allow me to approach Laurie Anderson, William Wegman, um, people like that, Alice Waters. Cool. Yeah. You know, what's really neat also is like when you, um, when you begin working more with artists and, um, you know, instead of food professionals, mm -hmm. you know, I, I think it's really refreshing to see that, um, somebody who is a creative type in a totally different field, um, like, I don't know, say William Wegman, we have no idea what he would eat yeah. <laughs> ordinarily. Right. Yeah. So, but all these creative people that you feature in this book eat some really amazing things. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really cool. Yeah. There's something somewhat depressing to learn about, you know, how <laughs> chefs often just eat takeout Chinese food yeah. when they're not working, right. you know, for, for a profit for making, you know, making food for a profit. So I, this is really exciting to see. I mean, Laurie Anderson, like, you know, these people are foodies. Um, they are. I mean, I, I don't know that they, not all of them actually identify that way. I mean, I think... Um, well, the photos make them, you know, they, obviously yeah, look yeah. really good, but... Yeah. No, I mean, I think it's... Um, it's nice it's nice to realize that um when you become so like steeped into the food world it's nice to take a step out and realize that there is this wide uh wide reaching appreciation for food that doesn't mm -hmm. necessarily uh, stop at people who identify no. within that kind of professional capacity that like other people i mean we're lo we're right I mean, now looking at people eating pizza needs, and they look yeah. really happy <laughs> I mean, like you are, yeah, you've been a, you know, artist, but you're obsessed with salads. And so there's many other people like that. Yeah. And yeah. So what are the differences between making this book? Because this is a, this is quite a hefty book. I mean, it looks like a lot of work went into it. You shot all the photos. Mm -hmm. um, there's some awesome illustrations too. Yeah. Um, throughout it, you know, and you've always been doing these um, public, you know, events. Mm -hmm. So I was really excited to go to one of them. And uh, yeah, it's just an ongoing part of the project, as you mentioned. Mm -hmm. So how did that play into um, making this book? Um, was this a long process that you were doing on the side while everything else was going on? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think um, I had been thinking through the idea of this being a book for a long time. And it wasn't until I really had to put 
pen to paper and make the proposal that I figured out what the book was. And initially, I imagined that it would kind of be, um, it would would be sort of a look at all of the aspects of Salad for President. So I had in my proposal all of these events, documentation of events I did at my garden at PS1 or at the Getty and all that, and dinner parties and things like that, and kind of figuring out a way of talking about Salad for President as both recipes and interviews and an online presence, but um, a record of how it exists in the world and mm-hmm. this more public uh, forum. But as I started to put put it together and be more realistic about page count, mm-hmm. um, that mm-hmm. I, did, I realized it wasn't that was like another book. It wasn't uh. important, and so I, I think that this book is a lot less about me and about my project and evolution necessarily personally, but it's more the shifts the focus back where I wanted it to be, which is on these these artists Stars, and yeah. um, and also my recipes. I mean, I think I develop all the recipes with the artists I feature on Salad for President, and I did so for the book as well. But it was also really exciting for me to have a space where I could include 75 of my own recipes that are not um, something that I've developed with another artist, but just salads that, that I've come up with um, and that I think kind of like put forward the perspective about food that sort of that I that I want, which is really that this is very simple and mm-hmm. easy to do. It's kind of there's a certain level of curiosity uh, about new ingredients and about travel and things that come from other places, but kind of figuring out the most approachable, easy and artful way of presenting mm-hmm. those, those ingredients. So I think um, the the events and the kind of like public-facing version of Salad for President is sort of how I get to make the book come to life now that I'm on a book tour, but Mm -hmm. it's not necessarily part of the book itself. Well, one thing I think is really fun about this book is that you get the sense of a gathering taking Mm -hmm. place, and maybe it's because... You know, I we got to have like a picnic when mm-hmm. you were doing the the feature on your blog, um, but you know it's not like this like sort of really um, distant journalist sort of sp- uh, scribbling you know in a mm-hmm. notepad. It, I you know it sounds like it seems like they really let you in into their home into their food. Yeah, which is really nice. Yeah, I really try. I always think like I leave every shoot kind of going, damn it, did I get it? Like, yeah. and a lot of the times I'm like, I didn't get it because I. I think the most important thing for me is to be present and and part mm-hmm. of a conversation yeah. when I'm shooting with someone and not to make them feel like we're at a photo shoot. Yeah. So it means that there's a lot of times where I just like don't take the photo that I know would be the best photo or I don't ask someone, wow. hey, can you just move over here or your back is to the light? Do or that whatever. again. Yeah. yeah, like I I don't really... I try not to do that because I think, I don't know, as a photographer and as someone who's, um, you know, whenever I'm on the other end of the camera, I don't like, I don't really like that feeling. I don't think most people do. Yeah. And so it's always really important to me that when I come into your home and I ask you to do this, you don't feel like a fish in a fishbowl, but that we're just having a conversation. I happen to be taking photos. So, um, they're not staged. These aren't like staged get togethers. I, I can see that. We just spent a day together and like in some of these cases more than that like the couple in Japan that's in the uh, Japanese noise band boredoms like I stayed with them for a week and then oh you know and then we just casually made a salad. So um, things like that, I kind of like to keep it pretty loose and real. And I think um, and then, you know, to contrast that when I was shooting all of my own salads, I wanted them to not feel like I was faking um, Mm -hmm. a domestic scene with a salad. Like I think when you're making a book, cookbook in particular, you spend a lot of time 
analyzing uh, the way that uh, food photography, trends in food photography, the way that um, tabletops are presented in this kind of like mid-meal casual, yeah. you know, sprinkle of spices that fell out of the bowl and <laughs> that, you know, like in a tussled napkin. And I mean, I think that lots of people are doing that really well and it, and it is attractive and it is, you are trying to talk about everyday life. But personally, I felt like I wanted to just say like, these were shot in a studio. I'm going to use interesting materials. There's like no utensils in the book, which oh. is something I didn't even notice until my editor was like, you, there's not a single, there's maybe like one Oh, for fork. the food shots? Yeah. yeah. Because I was like, well, but we're in a studio and we didn't sit down at this table with this crazy colored background and oh. eat this food. We took it, you know what I mean? <laughs> mm-hmm. So I'm not going to pretend. Different. Yeah. So... It was kind of, uh, that was intentional. Yeah, there's two types of photos here, like the real sort of documentary, not stage, you know, lifestyle, I guess, mm-hmm. shots. And then this, and then the beautifully plated, really, really interestingly um, arranged, you know, compositions. I love that asparagus shot. Yeah. Um, we, oh my God, there's so much to talk to, but we need to cut to a quick little commercial interlude mm-hmm. and be right back. I'm Mike Calameco, host of Food Talk on Heritage Radio Network, and I'm here with Bob Moore, founder of Bob's Red Mill, as well as Ray and Tom Williams, who've worked with Bob for years and co-own an organic farm in eastern Oregon and Washington. Ray, Tom, why is organic farming so important to your family? It's all a matter of the soil as a source of nutrients. You increase organic matter of the soil, you increase the water holding capacity. Water is becoming increasingly scarce. So in terms of sustainability, we don't think it's the only answer, but it's one answer, and it's the answer that we're trying to pursue. It's been a challenge, and it's been fun, because it it is different, and we're learning how to do it for the last 10-plus years. We're not just doing organic. We're doing organic to high standards. Bob, why did you choose to partner with Ray and Tom? Oh, goodness. Well, because they're the best farmers in Oregon, and they're close, and they have a bunch of acres, I think about 10,000, over in in eastern Oregon and Washington. They're wonderful farmers, and their family have been farmers over there uh, for many, many years. It's really important that you have long-term relationships, and we've enjoyed a long-term relationship with Bob's because there are a lot of challenges to organic farming. You simply don't have as many tools as a conventional farmer, and so you have to rely on longer-term solutions. Knowing that you have a market is absolutely critical. The margins in farming are not that great, so if you grow the stuff and you can't sell it, you have a real problem. And we know with Bob's that we have a market, and uh, we turn out high-quality grains, and they buy them, and it all works well. Learn more about Bob's Red Mill and their commitment to good food for all at bobsredmill.com slash podcast. All right, we're back chatting more with Julia Sherman, the creator of Salad for President and the new book, cookbook um, of the same name. So, Julia, we were just um, talking a little bit about, you know, how how it was to make this book and shoot everything because I, I guess, you know, traditionally the role of a recipe developer or like cookbook author was separated from that of a photographer. But more and more we're seeing, you know, ob- um, a lot of 
a lot of times coming from the blogosphere, if you will, mm-hmm. you know, that being the same conjoined role. Right. And um, you are also the photographer for this book. Mm-hmm. So um, how was the photo shoot? Because um, they're amazing photos. And, uh, it, you know, did you have to be sort of in control of the whole production of it as well? Yeah, I mean, I I had a great experience working with Abrams, which is my publisher, Um, but I think part of that was that going into it, we were all on the same page, that I would bring my own designer, I would shoot it myself, I would creative direct it myself, so um, they kind of like, you know... They gave me they the keys away. and let me go. Yeah. So, so you um, get to work with like all these collaborators who did like, uh, you know, the bowls and yeah, the so background. I kind of, I, I felt like as someone, I didn't, I haven't spent my whole life reading cookbooks. That's not, never been, I'm not. You the, didn't? No. no I'm, well, I know a lot of people who tell me like, I read cookbooks in bed, which I read cooks illustrated in bed, but that's uh-huh. as far as I go in terms of like food literature and content coming into my bed. But yeah. I think <laughs> that I, I'm more, I, I just, I'm not, I've never really been someone who like read cookbooks cover to cover until I started my my yeah. blog and then I started to like really you know inform myself and look at books but um I I definitely felt like uh it was important that the it be kind of my vision from the beginning to the end and that uh in order for it to kind of be a cohesive thing that I had to really think through how all the pieces fit together and that included the props which are um you know in in a lot of books they're not credited or you don't know who's work it is and Mm -hmm. I think in this day and age like one thing I love seeing as a as an out as a result of social media and uh, people being able to to promote themselves is that people know the names of ceramicists now Mm -hmm. and that like you can be like a really popular ceramicist which is really awesome so um, you know that's somebody that's a really hard job you can only make so many bowls as a one as a single person you know so um, I worked with 10 or 15, to 15, I think, uh, different artists to create the props for the book. Um, not every single prop, of course. I mean, some of them were filled in and, um, and the props, you know, from the, when I shoot with the artists come from the artist's home. But for the mm-hmm. photo shoot, we did eight days of shooting and I had worked with each of the artists. It was everyone from Helen Levi to um, Daniela, who's, who does arc objects. There's, there's a... Whose I, plates are these? These are awesome. Those are Lindsay Rogers. There's mm-hmm. a... In the back of the book, They're there's an index where okay. you can see all mm-hmm. the people's work um, by page. And, um, and then, you know, I didn't even think of... First of all, on a normal photo shoot, you have your food stylist, you have your photographer, you, you're usually separate from the author, and, and you have a prop stylist, prop, yeah. which... Um, I should have had, um, and I did not have a props. I was on set. Um, and you just had a lot of props. I had so many <laughs> props and I didn't know cause I had never done a shoot like yeah. this before. But when my editor came to the shoot, she was like, this is the craziest amount of stuff I've ever seen. <laughs> and I was like, and she's like, you, and you didn't even, I didn't rent a single prop. It was all no. donated. Um, yeah, because usually a prop stylist just has a warehouse and they choose whichever and they reuse them. Right. And, you know. Or they go and they rent each piece or, you know, you mm-hmm. have to rent all the surfaces. Like, it's just interesting because even if you think about the way books are made and you're a photographer or you're a writer or whatever, you know, you don't usually flip through a book and think about how many different surfaces there are. It sounds so the mundane. Yeah. The background, like, what do you put the salad on? What bowl, do, what bowl does it go in and what surface does it go on? And so is it a cloth? 
cloth? Is it a uh, stone? Is it paper? Is it, um, you know, is it wood? Whatever. You know, if you've got a hundred recipes, that's a hundred different variations. I mean, people reuse obviously, but so the day before I was like, shit, I don't have any surfaces. I didn't even like really think of it. And I went to my friends, uh, have this wallpaper company called Calico and they're also in Red Hook where I was shooting the book. And is this surface a wallpaper? That's an old artwork I made. That's a photograph of a mirror in a nun's, in a former convent. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I was repurposing my, my, like my old artwork as surfaces (laughs) at a certain point, um, which was really funny, but so a lot of the like marbled textures and the ombres like yep. that, those mm-hmm. are all actually wallpaper samples. That's awesome. Yeah. So they, I just went there and I went through their flat files and left with like a hundred different, different, you different know, shades. Yeah. It gives it a really nice clean look and also a complimentary, but this, um, I'm looking at right now, this seafood, I guess, uh, salad, salad mm-hmm. insulate de mer. And then there's this beautiful pattern. Is that a wallpaper? Yeah. So and it really is complimentary to the seafood and yeah. the squiddies. I don't yeah. know. Yeah. So I think like just thinking about all of those moving parts and putting together a book is like, I mean, you have such a different perspective on it after mm-hmm, you do that. Mm-hmm. You know, you think about all the decisions that had to be made by day eight of this photo shoot. I really felt like I never wanted to make another decision as long as I live, like not about what to eat for dinner, <laughs> not about anything, because it was just like, I never want to look at another bowl and I can't, you know, every, everybody's looking at you all day. Like what's next? What's next? Wow. Which bowl, which salad, which, you know, and you're just like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So I was amazed. It's also funny because when we were, when I was concepting how I wanted the photo shoot to go and gathering props, my idea was that I think also, you know, writing a book, you, 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 um, at least for me, there was periods of time where I was like, I'm trying to be someone that I'm not because I wanted it to be like the best thing or different than anything I'd ever done. So I was like, all right, everything's going to be black and white in my recipes and like the food will really pop, but all of the surfaces and all of the bowls and everything are going to be really muted and really kind of um, restrained. And then Mm. the artists will really shine and the food will really shine. And the second we started shooting, after the first day, I looked up on the wall at all the proofs and I was like, what did I do? Like, it was like every color of the rainbow. There was metallic. There was pattern. It was like totally crazy. So then the whole plan had to go out the window and then I just did what I always do and just uh, had no plan at all. And it worked (laughs) out, but it was like, you know, all of a sudden I was like, why am I trying to be some like super restrained minimalist that I've never been in my life? You're like, let's try that out. Right. Now, that's, you know, what happens sometimes when you set out to make a salad. You know, sometimes I'll be trying to be really frou-frou and I'm like, that's stupid. Yeah. That's (laughs) like, I always tell people that I like, sometimes I like put together a salad and then I, a really beautiful thing and I plate it and I take a picture of it Mm -hmm. and then I dump the whole thing in a mixing bowl and (laughs) use it with a spoon. (laughs) Oh my gosh. Well, um, Julia, I guess that's about all the time we have for today, but thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much. And congrats on this book. I know you've been touring a lot, so I'm really glad that you were able to stop by here. Yeah. And um, I guess, yeah, check out Salad for President, just out from Abrams. It's a great gift. It's a great thing for whether you're an artist, you're an architect, whether you're a musician, who knows what, Salad aficionado. aficionado. 
um, it's for everybody. If if anybody is in Williamsburg this Thursday, Joanna Avila is the illustrator and my friend. Um, she illustrated the book, and we're going to be doing a conversation at Space 98 in Williamsburg at uh, 7 p.m. There'll be salad and drinks, and wow. and the ceramicists from the book will be selling their work. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, it's going to cool. be really fun. Definitely check it out at solidforpresident.com. Yes, All that's right. my book tour page. Sweet. Thank you. All right, thanks, Julia. We'll see you next week on Eat Your Words. listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. Fresh Pickings is a podcast by Heritage Radio Network, presented by Bob's Red Mill. Love learning about food? Get more superfood for your brain with the featured podcast miniseries, Fresh Pickings. Go to bobsredmill.com slash freshpickings. Did you know that oats have been used to brew beer, thicken soups, soothe skin conditions, treat osteoporosis, and even reduce the risk of heart disease? Welcome to Fresh Pickings. I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Today, we're going to look at one of the most common yet remarkable foods of the modern world, the humble oat. I'll talk to Mary Azette, co-host of Femen About It, about what makes oats old-fashioned. We'll also talk about the health benefits of oatmeal and how oats are used to brew beer. Then Kathy Irway, host of Eat Your Words, will share her recipe for peachy salad with savory toasted oats. So stay tuned. Hey, Mom. Hey, Kat. What's up? So I'm doing this podcast about old-fashioned oats, and I thought I would kick things off by talking about my favorite way to eat them. Do you know what I'm talking about? Um, oatmeal drop cookies? Yep. So we had these cookies um, a couple times a year, usually at the holidays. But why didn't you make them more often? They're so good. They are so good. But surprisingly, even though they're no-bake, they're a little bit tricky to make. You have to cook them on the stovetop, and you have to cook them long enough but not too long so that they'll dry but they won't be too sticky gotcha where did you get that recipe from 
Well, my mom used to make them when I was a little girl, and I think the recipe's been around for a long time, so I'm not really sure where she got it from, but she passed it down to me. I'm really craving a batch. Do you think you can mail me some? <laughs> mail them from Alabama to New York? Yeah. I don't think so. But I'll tell you what, I'll send you the recipe. All right, that works. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> Bye, Kat. Basically, old-fashioned oats are dried, have their husks removed, are chopped up, lightly toasted, then rolled. That's Mary Azette, co-host of Foment About It, here on Heritage Radio Network. She's also a home brewer extraordinaire. Oats are harvested when the stalks begin to change from green to brown, traditionally using a scythe or similar tool. The stalks are tied into bunches, also called shocks, with twine and left to dry for about two weeks. Once they're dry, the inedible outer husk, also known as chaff, is removed and the remaining product is called oat groats. The groats are chopped up by large steel blades, then lightly toasted to inactivate enzymes, gelatinize the starch, and reduce moisture levels, makes them fit for storage. At this stage, the oats are known as Irish oatmeal or steel-cut oats. But this is not the same thing as old-fashioned oats, right? That's right. In order to turn steel-cut oats into old-fashioned oats, you're going to use a unique kiln-toasting method and delicate rolling process. This process stabilizes the healthy oils in the oats, so they stay fresh longer. It also makes a huge difference in how you cook them. Old-fashioned oats absorb more liquid and cook faster by creating a greater surface area. So this is the kind of oats that's really popular for us to eat for breakfast. Why exactly are old-fashioned oats the more popular version? Well, oats are such a ubiquitous breakfast food because they are hearty, fast-growing, and multi-purpose. They have a lower summer temperature requirement and greater tolerance of rain and cold than other cereals like wheat, rye, or barley. So you're saying that oats are great crops to grow in areas with cooler climates, such as Ireland. Exactly. They're actually best grown in temperate regions and are fairly easy to cultivate. They can be planted either in autumn for a late summer harvest or in the spring for an early autumn harvest. But that's not the only reason they're popular. Oats have tons of health benefits. Like what? Well, for starters, oats are naturally gluten-free, whole grain, high in fiber, and they have seven grams of protein per serving. Hold on. I didn't think oats were gluten-free. Pure oats are gluten-free, and they're safe for most people with gluten intolerance. The reason that many companies can't say their oats are gluten-free is due to contamination when they process them in facilities that also process wheat, barley, or rye. I see. So companies like Bob's Red Mill, who sell gluten-free oats, they're processing those in a facility with no contamination with other grains. Exactly. And that's great news for gluten intolerant folks who want to get other health benefits from oat bran, such as its ability to lower LDL cholesterol. That's also known as the bad cholesterol. Oats are kind of a wonder ingredient, but there's one use of oats that I specifically wanted to ask you about, Mary. You're a brewer. So what about making beer with oats? Yes. So the first style that comes to mind is the oatmeal stout. Now, oatmeal stouts have actually seen a resurgence in recent years. The style was first brewed, I don't know when, but it was brewed through the 1950s in England. It lost popularity and eventually pretty much went extinct. Now, Samuel Smith's Brewery of Yorkshire brought it back into production in 1980, and now it's fairly common to find not only over there, but in the United States as well. Now, a newer style that often uses oats is called the New England IPA, which is a hazy juice bomb of a beer and is really common these days. Interesting. I, I knew about oatmeal stouts, but not about that newer one. So 
I actually have no idea how the oats are used in the brewing process. Can you explain that to me? Absolutely. It's actually really simple. The oats are added into the mash at the same time that your other grains are. Now, other grains commonly used would be barley, wheat, and rye. But by adding in oats, you actually produce a smoother, fuller, and more complex beer. The only thing to keep in mind is if you're using a significant percentage of oatmeal in your mash, you'll want to use something like rice hulls to present a stuck sparge because oats are a little gummier. After all this talk about oatmeal stouts and old-fashioned oats, I wanted to learn some new and creative ways to cook oats myself. So I called on Kathy Irway, host of Eat Your Words on Heritage Radio Network and author of the blog Not Eating Out in NY.com. Well, I always end up using my ingredients in new and unexpected ways. One of my favorite ways to use Bob's Red Mill oats, because they're so thick and sort of hearty, they're not like your quick oats. So they're really great to use as a crunchy topping for something. So one time I didn't have croutons or stale bread to make croutons with, so I just toasted up some oats, added some seasoning, and made a savory sort of crispy topping for a salad. You could also do the same thing and make it sweet with a little bit of butter and sugar and maybe cinnamon and have a nice topping for your yogurt or ice cream. I love that. So tell me about the process for toasting old-fashioned oats. Well, if you're going to make a big batch, you can always just throw them on a baking sheet and, and cook them in a low heat oven. But if you're just going to make a small amount for eating right there and then and having it nice and fresh, you can just heat up a pan with um, a little bit of olive oil and toss your oats on it and just shake it around for a few minutes. Add some salt, pepper, any spices you want, maybe a little dash of cayenne pepper, which I like to add, and just kind of watch it and stir until it's... Uh, just fragrant and toasty smelling and you know you don't want to burn it so watch out for any signs of it overheating or over toasting then just remove them from the pan and let them cool i bet that makes the apartment smell nice too it is it's really nice (laughs) thanks to kathy for sharing her tips for using old-fashioned oats You can find her recipe for peachy salad with savory toasted oats at bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Well, that's just about everything you could want to know about oats. If you liked what you heard, be sure to check out our other episodes of Fresh Pickings and learn more about Bob's Red Mill's favorite ingredients, including some delicious recipes and great coupon offers by going to bobsredmill.com slash fresh pickings. Bob's Red Mill believes in good food for all. For Heritage Radio Network, I'm your host, Kat Johnson. Thanks for joining us.